Well, after I finished high school, I did a discipleship program called Out of Town. Some of you have have heard me talk about this before. And as part of this program, I traveled to Guatemala with 35 other young adults. And while we were there, we had the opportunity to experience all kinds of adventures. And one of the adventures that we had uh, the opportunity to experience was riding a mountain bike down a volcano. Okay, now most of the time when we would go out for these fun, exciting adventures, we would go out as like a whole group and everyone would participate. But this was presented to us as an exclusive opportunity that was only open to people who had mountain biking experience. And that put me in a serious dilemma. Because the truth was, the closest thing I really had to mountain biking experience was riding my bike down the Chapel Street Hill here in town, just flying down, and uh, I didn't always, didn't always work out for me. Well, I have scars to prove it. Um, that was really all the, the experience I had, but I really wanted to be able to go home and tell my friends that I had done this, that I had ridden my bike down a volcano. Like, that's cool, right? I wanted to have that on my resume. And so a few of my friends and I talked about it, and we convinced ourselves that our childhood bicycling experiences were indeed adequate qualifications to sign up. And so we did. We signed up. And eventually, the day came, and they piled us into this truck, and they drove us up as far as they could along the the side of the volcano, and they they dropped us off there. And I will never forget the feeling of sitting on my bike on the top of the volcano, looking at that steep, narrow, bumpy, winding pathway, and just looking at my friends and as they looked at me and all of us together realizing at the very same moment that we had made a huge mistake. And then making our way down the hill just inch by inch with our feet dragging the whole time as though that gave us some kind of control over the situation while the tour guide yelled at us to put our feet on our pedals and keep our eyes ahead of us, which is actually extremely difficult to do when you're pretty sure you're about to die. (laughs) Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you felt like you were in over your head and you didn't know how you were going to make it through? Have you ever found yourself in a situation where things felt totally out of control? Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you felt overwhelmed and underprepared, where things felt chaotic and uncertain and, I don't know, unprecedented, maybe? My guess is that for most of us, words like chaotic and overwhelming and out of control would be pretty accurate ways to describe what the last two and a half years have felt like. And this morning, we're looking at a passage of scripture that generation after generation of Jesus followers have been turning to for hope in the midst of life's storms. We're going to be looking at the story of Peter 
walking on water. This is a really familiar passage. I'm sure many of you are familiar with it. And I think the reason that it's so well known, even outside of the church, is that there's something about this story that really resonates with our experience as human beings. We all go through times where life feels kind of stormy. We all go through times where it feels like the wind and the waves won't let up. We all go through times where things feel out of control and where we're not sure if we're going to make it. So let's turn to Matthew 14, verses 22 to 23, and have a look at how things go for the disciples when they find themselves in one of these situations. Matthew 14, 22. We're going to start there. Immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and cross to the other side of the lake while he sent the people home. After sending them home, he went into the hills by himself to pray. Night fell while he was there alone. So, if you remember, Jesus and his disciples have just finished feeding the crowd of 5,000 people. We looked at this story about a month ago. And some of you might remember that right before that happened, Jesus had just learned that his cousin, John the Baptist, had been beheaded. And he was looking for some time to get alone, to grieve, to pray, to be with God. But this huge crowd followed him. And when he saw them, he had compassion for the people. So instead of sending them away, he healed the sick. He ended up doing this miracle where he fed this huge crowd with just five loaves of bread and two fish. But he never actually got that time, that time to be alone with his father. And so here, he sends his disciples to the other side of the lake, and Jesus goes up into the hills to pray, to get that time alone with God. And he stays there late into the night praying. And then the camera kind of pans to the disciples as we read this story. Verse 24 says, Meanwhile, the disciples were in trouble, far away from the land, for a strong wind had risen, and they were fighting heavy waves. So that little journey across the lake that Jesus had sent the disciples on wasn't going so well for them. We're about to read in the the passage that it's about 3 o'clock in the morning, Some of your uh, translations will say it's the fourth watch. That's three to six in the morning. They're exhausted. They're far away from the shore. And as the Greek literally reads in the text, they're being tormented by the wind and the waves. Verse 25, about three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them walking on the water. When the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified In their fear, they cried out, it's a ghost. Every time I read that now, I've got Wilbur's little voice in my head. It's a ghost. So Jesus doesn't leave the disciples alone in their struggle. He goes out onto the water and he meets them. But when the disciples see Jesus walking on the water, they don't recognize him and they panic. And really, it's hard to blame the disciples for freaking out here, right? I mean, first of all, people don't usually walk on water. So there's that. 
right? But in this culture, big bodies of water like lakes and oceans were actually associated with evil. In our world, when we think about going to the lake, a lot of times we think about peace, right, and tranquility and relaxation, or we think about like vacations by the ocean. But in this culture, those big, deep bodies of water were considered to be places of chaos and destruction and where evil spirits kind of had their way. Turbulent waters were a scary place in this world. And so these guys are already on edge. And here comes this shadowy figure walking on the water and they panic, right? They think it must be a ghost. Verse 27, but Jesus spoke to them at once. Don't be afraid, he said, take courage. I am here. So Jesus offers the disciples this reassurance. And there's something that's actually really easy to miss in the passage here. When Jesus says, I am, he's using an expression that's used throughout the whole Old Testament as the name for God. Some of you probably remember in Exodus 3 verse 14, God is talking to Moses about uh, leading the Israelites uh, from, from Egypt, right, out into freedom from slavery. And when Moses asks God to tell him his name so that he can report it to the Israelites, what, what does God say? Do you remember? He says, I am. He says, I am who I am. Right? And then he uses this name throughout the Old Testament. So Jesus here is identifying himself with God, with the God who created the entire world, with the God who led the Israelites out of slavery, with the God who provided for them in the wilderness. And throughout the Old Testament, God is the only one who has authority over the waters, over the dark, chaotic, scary waters. We see this again and again. If you pay attention, you'll notice it as you're reading the Old Testament. There are passages where God is depicted as walking on the water, actually. Job 9 verse 8, for example, says, he alone has spread out the heavens and marches on the waves of the sea. When God rescues his uh, people from Egypt, how does he do it? He parts the Red Sea so that they could walk through. This is something that they always remembered, that they always came back to, to remember that God is powerful, that their God is strong, that their God has authority over the water, even the water. Throughout the book of Matthew, there has been this unfolding revelation of who Jesus really is. At first, people heard his teaching and they thought, this, this guy's a really good teacher. And then Jesus did miracles and people started to identify him as a prophet. But here, Jesus is revealing what would have been impossible for these guys to miss at the time. That he's more than a good teacher. He's more than a prophet. That he is God. And so the disciples don't need to be afraid. Not because the storm isn't scary. Not because there isn't any sort of real risk here. They're in a dangerous situation. 
but they don't need to be afraid because Jesus is there. He's with them in the midst of it. Verse 28, then Peter called to him, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you walking on the water. Yes, come, Jesus said. So Peter went over the side of the boat and walked on the water towards Jesus. But when he saw the strong wind and the waves, he was terrified and began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted. Now, like most of us, Peter's greatest strength is also his greatest weakness. And we see this throughout the Gospels, right? We see this characteristic of impulsivity again and again in Peter. He's always the first one to speak. Sometimes he says things and does things that kind of get him into trouble. But here, uh, Peter sees his rabbi walking on water. And the role of a disciple is to do what his rabbi does. And so Peter gets a great idea. He's filled with courage. He jumps up and he asks Jesus to call him forward onto the water. And Jesus does. He says, yes, come. And so Peter starts to walk on the water towards Jesus. But then he has one of those moments. You know what those moments feel like? Those, I just made a huge mistake kind of moments, right? One of those, what am I doing? I'm in over my head. I'm not going to make it kind of moments. He shifts his attention away from Jesus and towards the wind and the wave, towards his circumstances, and he starts to go under. But Peter knows what to do in this moment. He knows that this isn't a problem that he can solve on his own. He doesn't have the resources here to save himself, and so what does he do? He cries out to Jesus for help. Verse 31, Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. You have so little faith, Jesus said. Why did you doubt me? Immediately, Jesus reaches out and pulls Peter back to his feet. I love that Matthew goes out of his way to tell us that, that Jesus just doesn't waste any time here. He sees Peter panicking, and he reaches out right away, and he pulls him back up, and then he says, you have so little faith. Why did you doubt me? And often we read that in kind of like a condemning tone, right? But I don't think that that's what's going on here. I think that Jesus is giving Peter the opportunity to reflect on what just happened, to let his faith muscle grow as he reflects on the reality and he kind of like lets it sink in deep into his bones that even in that scary, overwhelming, seemingly impossible situation, he could trust Jesus. And then verse 32, when they climbed back into the boat, the wind stopped. The disciples then the disciples worshipped him. You really are the son of God, they exclaimed. And so Peter and Jesus get back into the boat and the wind calms down. And the disciples do the only appropriate thing there is to do in this moment. 
they worship Jesus. This is actually the first time in the book of Matthew where Jesus' followers recognize him as the son of God. Jesus has just done what these guys know only God can do in all of his greatness and all of his power, but he's done it with so much tenderness and care for his followers. Often when we talk about this passage, Peter kind of gets a bad rap, right? It's easy to read this story 2,000 years later from the comfort of our living rooms and our churches and to kind of criticize Peter for his lack of faith. I mean, Jesus is right there. He's just called Peter out onto the water. Peter's seen Jesus do all kinds of miracles. He knows what Jesus is capable of. But right when it matters the most, right when his life depends on it, he's overwhelmed with doubt. It's easy to see this as a massive failure. But I don't think we give Peter quite enough credit when we read this story through that lens. I mean, where are the other 11 disciples? They're back in the boat. We can criticize Peter for his lack of faith, but he's actually the only one who had enough faith to get out of the boat in the first place. And even though the experience didn't go as Peter might have hoped, for those few steps, he got to experience the exhilaration of walking on water. I mean, who else can put that on their resume? That's cool. (laughs) When babies are learning to walk, we don't yell, boo, (laughs) when they only make it a few steps at a time before they fall down, right? We don't consider it a failure. We just cheer them on because we know that every time they take another step, they're getting closer. They're learning, their muscles are developing, their bodies are discovering what it feels like to walk. Peter might have only taken a few steps before going down, but through this experience, he was learning what it feels like to have faith in Jesus. And not just faith in like an abstract theoretical sense, but a faith that's real, that shows up in real life, and that changes the way that we live. There's actually a lot to admire about Peter in this story. What went wrong for him was simply just this. When he found himself in unfamiliar territory, when he felt the wind and the waves coming up against him when he was overwhelmed by what seemed like an impossible situation. When he got scared, he became consumed by his circumstances and his attention shifted away from the only one who was able to keep him up on top of the water in the midst of the storm. What do you do when the ground feels unsteady beneath your feet? Do you stay focused on Jesus and anchored in your faith and keep moving forward? Or do you find that when things get tough, 
Your circumstances consume your thoughts and your energy. If we're honest, most of us spend our time somewhere in between those two realities. Or like Peter, oscillating back and forth between faith and fear. When we find ourselves in chaotic situations that are overwhelming, it can be difficult to focus on anything other than what feels completely out of control. Lately, I've been doing some reading on transitions. And when we think about transitions, we often think about those kind of once-in-a-lifetime milestone experiences that we have every now and then, right? Like graduating from high school or moving on to a new job. But transitions really are just the thing that happens inside of us every time we adapt to a change that takes place in our lives. Change is what happens outside of us. Transition is the process that happens inside of us as we navigate the anxiety and the excitement and the questions around identity and all of those things that go hand in hand with adapting to change. Anytime we experience changes in our relationships or in our health or in our home life or our careers, there's a process of transition that goes along with it. And we don't often think about it this way, but anytime we find ourselves in one of those situations where life feels chaotic and overwhelming, it's because we're in the process of transition. Something has changed and we're trying to figure out how to live within this new reality. Like Peter. Peter was a land animal. <laughs> Peter had only ever walked on dry land, and suddenly he found himself in a situation where Jesus was empowering him to do things that he'd always believed were impossible. And as, as I've been learning about how we process transition and what it feels like to be in the different stages of transition, it's been striking me how relevant it is to what we're all experiencing in the season that we're in. And how so many of the feelings that I've been hearing people describe as they talk about the challenges that we've been facing throughout the pandemic really make so much sense when you look at them through the lens of the process of transition and what it feels like. The most helpful illustration I've come across for explaining this is called the transition bridge. Some of you might have been wondering why there's an exercise ball in the middle of the stage. <laughs> the most helpful illustration I've, I've come across for explaining this is the transition bridge. And Danielle Strickland has a talk where she explains going to a camp for missionary families, where they help kids kind of process the experience of moving and having her son, Judah, go through this exercise that's based on the transition bridge, and it was set up just like this. Okay, and so we're gonna kind of walk through this this morning. So the first stage of transition over here is called the settled phase. The first chair. We were gonna use these big, big chairs here, but like this whole stage was consumed, and so I've gotta kind of bend over, got the little kid chairs here. The first stage of transition is called the settled phase. And when Judah stepped on that first chair, the facilitator asked him about his old, uh, his old life, what it felt like back before he figured out that he was going to be moving. 
And Judah talked about his old bedroom and his friends, the things that he liked. The settled phase is where things feel comfortable and familiar. And it's always the first stage of transition. And then the second phase here, you can see it's a little wobbly, it's called the unsettled phase. And when Judah stepped onto the second chair, the facilitator asked what it felt like when he found out that he was going to be moving. And he said, you know, I felt kind of excited, but also kind of scared. And every time I hung out with my friends, I felt a little sad because I knew I wasn't going to be seeing them. You know, I kind of, kind of always felt uneasy. The unsettled phase is when we realize that everything is about to change. Right? And sometimes we enter into this phase of transition because we feel God calling us into something new or because we've made a decision about where we want to go next in our lives, like if we get a new job, like when we decide to have a family, when we decide to move. Other times, we are thrust into this stage of transition against our will. Like when you turn on the news and you hear that a global pandemic has been declared. Or when you get a diagnosis, or when somebody you love moves away. So this is the unsettled phase of transition. And then this, uh, this is the chaos stage of transition. Right? This is the phase of transition where we're living in the new reality, and everything feels overwhelming and stressful and out of control where we feel like we might not make it, like where there's nothing to hold on to. And a lot of times in this phase of transition, we have big questions about our identity. We feel like we don't know who we are anymore. We don't feel like we know where we're going. And this is a normal stage of transition, the chaos stage. And so if you've been feeling any of those things, if you've been feeling overwhelmed, like you're not going to make it, like nothing feels steady, as we've been trying to adapt to the changes over the course of the last two and a half years, I have really good news for you. You're normal. You're normal. This is a normal stage of transition. And when Judah got to this place where the facilitator asked him to move from this second chair to this exercise ball, do you know what he did? He turned behind him and he, he whispered to his brother, Help me. And his big brother came over and he just kind of grabbed him by the elbows and he held him up on this exercise ball. This chaos season of transition, we really need to lean on each other. We need to support each other. And it's actually really easy in this stage of transition to lash out at others or to look to blame other people because of all the inner turmoil that we're experiencing. But it's really when we need, when we need each other the most, when we need to be supporting each other the most. And then the next stage of transition, transition is called the resettling phase of transition. And when Judah stepped onto this chair, the facilitator asked him what it felt like when he got to his new house and started at his new school. 
You know what he said? He said, I liked it, but it didn't really feel like home. You know that feeling, right? You start the new job that you were so excited for, but you have no idea what you're doing. You move into the new house, but the cutlery tray does not fit into the cutlery drawer, and you cannot find a new one that you like as much as you, you loved your old cutlery tray. I have this experience every time I move, <laughs> right? Everyone knows, it, knows what, this fe- what this feels like. We're in the new place, but it doesn't yet feel like home. And the thing that's important to know about this stage of transition is, again, that it's normal, because it's easy when we get here to feel like we've made a mistake or to feel like we're never going to feel okay again. But it's just part of the process, right? And we just keep moving forward. And then this final stage of transition is called the resettled phase or what you can call the new normal. And this is where things feel comfortable again. You're living in the new reality and it feels familiar. You feel like you can relax. You feel like you can finally breathe again. It feels like home. And then it's only a matter of time before this chair becomes that one over there, right? And we start the process again because life is a series of transitions and changes. So where do you find yourself along the transition bridge today? Maybe with respect to where we're at, with kind of moving through the pandemic, or maybe in another area of your life. It's really tempting when we've spent so much time over the last couple of years kind of moving back and forth between chaos and resettling to do everything we can to stay back at that first chair, right? To just get and stay comfortable. But there's something risky involved when we aren't willing to to step out and to move into new things, right? Because we can miss out on the things that God's calling us into. There's a risk of moving forward, but there's always a risk of staying still. And we all know that at the end of the day, it's only going to be a matter of time anyways before we find ourselves in a situation where we're forced to kind of move into transition, even if we didn't want it. And so what do we do? What do we do when we find ourselves in these situations that feel chaotic and overwhelming? There are a few simple things that I think we can pull from our passage this morning that are simple, but that are really powerful. The first one's this, keep your eyes on Jesus. The moment that Peter started to sink was the moment that he took his eyes off of Jesus and focused his attention on the wind and the waves that were coming up against him. When we're in seasons of chaos, it's easy to focus all of our time and all of our energy trying to control things that are totally beyond our control. But the same Jesus who was there on the water with Peter is with us every moment of every day. The same God who created the world is working to create new life in and around us, even when things feel hard and confusing and when we don't know what's next. We have a God who's faithful and a God who we can trust. And when we keep our eyes on him, it keeps everything else in perspective. And he can bring us his peace in those situations that feel so overwhelming. So keep your eyes on Jesus, and the second thing is this. Take one step 
at a time. When we're in situations that feel stressful and uncertain, it's easy to kind of get stuck because we don't know where things are headed. We like certainty, right? We like clarity. We like to know how the story's gonna end so that we can plan our steps out accordingly. Trust me, I am a calendar girl. I love planning, I love calendars. And so this whole having no idea what things are gonna look like a year from now or a month from now or a week from now has not come easily, easily to me. And I'm sure it hasn't for many of you either. But when Peter got out of the boat, he had no option but to move one step at a time towards Jesus. And when we can't see what the road ahead looks like or when it feels like we're miles away from where we need to be, the best thing that we can do is just the next right thing. To seek God's guidance and trust in his faithfulness one day, one moment, one decision at a time. Keep your eyes on Jesus, take one step at a time. And the last thing is this, Lean into community. When Judah had to step out onto the exercise ball, what did he do? He asked for help from somebody that he could trust. When, Jesus, or when Peter started to sink, what did he do? He cried out to Jesus and he asked him to save him. Scripture tells us that you and I are the body of Christ. We are Jesus' hands and feet here in the world. We are the ones who are called to reach out and to pull each other up when the wind and the waves start to pull us under. Another thing that we did on that discipleship program that I mentioned earlier was we went on a five-day canoe trip, which is like my worst nightmare. Not the canoeing, but like the sleeping in a tent and the not having running water. But anyway, so we went on a canoe trip, and there were 35 young adults out on the water with no experience canoeing, and we were just up in northern Ontario. And one of the things that they taught us to do when the water got choppy was to gunnel up, to pull our canoes beside each other, and then to hold on to each other's gunnels along the side. Because when we held on to each other, we were just like a row of canoes, just clinging on to each other, we would destabilize the water and nobody would tip over. One of the most challenging things, I think, about the pandemic has been that for the last two years, everyone's life has been in chaos. And so we haven't been able to lean on each other for support like we often can. Because it's really hard to, to hold somebody up on an exercise ball when you're trying to stand on one yourself. But what we can do when we're all kind of navigating chaos together is we can gunnel up. We can hold each other steady. We can make sure that everyone knows that they're not alone. We can care for each other when we're able to and ask for help when we need it. And we can have grace with each other every step of the way. As followers of Jesus, we're called to be people who lean into community and support one another when the storms hit. So keep your eyes on Jesus. Take one step at a time and lean into community. 
1 John 4.18 tells us that perfect love drives out fear. Perfect love drives out fear. And I don't know what kind of storms you're finding yourself in today or where you're at in that bridge of transition as we kind of make our way through this unprecedented season and towards a new normal. But I do know this, that God is with us and that his love is perfect. And when we keep our eyes focused on him, he'll carry us through and lead us into his goodness and life one step at a time.